Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces. I'm here with Stephanie Carvin through our Zoom software network. We're all confined to quarters today because of the snowstorm in Ottawa, but we're joined over the internet connection by Stephen Hoffman. Stephen's a former colleague of mine at the University of Ottawa Law School, now the director of the Global Strategy Lab and a professor of global health, law, and political science at York University. Stephen, welcome to the show. We have a really important topic we want to talk about today. And, and Stephanie, why don't you set this up for us? Well, it's going to be uh, an important topic, mostly because I'm pretty sick as it is right now. But obviously, in the news, we've been hearing so much about the coronavirus, also now known as COVID-19 uh, in the media. And uh, we wanted to talk to you about how this is actually dealt with on an international level. It's not just, you know, kind of random panic the way you would see in the movies. And it's also not necessarily people sitting in dark rooms watching infected account numbers rise on different television screens. Um, and I'm referring to like literally every pandemic movie ever. There is actually international steps, procedures, national steps and procedures that are followed in these circumstances. And we couldn't think of anyone better to really kind of walk us through what those are. So Stephen, so welcome, welcome again to the show. And maybe you could just uh, offer up a, a brief overview of, of what, this, what this virus is all about and, and what makes it so novel and, and why are we seeing such a strong state response? Great. So first, uh, thanks so much for, for having me on the podcast. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's great to, to be on it. So thanks. Uh, in terms of this, um, what we're seeing now is it's an emerging infectious disease. Uh, in some respects, um, it's new because, of course, we haven't seen this particular kind of coronavirus uh, before. Uh, and so we uh, humans don't have um, immunity to it. So that's one reason why we're seeing it spread uh, in the way we are. But um, one thing that's important to know is that the spread of infectious disease is not new. In fact, that's the whole, that's really much at the core of public health. We're used to dealing with the spread of infectious diseases. Uh, and indeed, as our world has increasingly globalized and we're seeing more trade and travel than ever before, the kind of uh, thing that we're seeing today is the new normal. And indeed, public health has been preparing for it for quite some time. Getting more specific, though, what we're seeing is a virus that uh, originated um, uh, in an animal, probably um, transferred to another animal, it mutated, and then became, got to a point where it infected a human, and since then we've seen some human-to-human -human transmission. Uh, this is actually the likely story for how um, uh, new emerging infections will arise um, in the future. Uh, this is the basis of many movies that many listeners might uh, have watched. Um, but it's, uh, it also highlights that um, we're, we've been planning for something like this. And so in many respects, um, of course, there's still so much we don't yet know about this virus. We don't know exactly how it transmits. We don't know how much it's going to be transmitting. The range of severity of symptoms is, goes all the way from no symptoms all the way to death. So there's so much we don't yet know who's at greatest risk. But we do know a lot, and there are plans in place around the world for how to address these things. That's important context to set, that this is new, but we're not new to infectious diseases. And just correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen, um, a, d a disease like this that you're talking about, it's, it's often referred to as a zoonotic disease because it's of animal origin? 
So that's so the initial jump uh, when it's um, when a virus or any kind of pathogen would be jumping from an animal to a human, that transmission would be known as a zoonotic disease. That's right. Uh, at this point, though, it's become um, we see most of the transmission. Uh, well, almost all the transmission is human to human transmission. Uh, so at which point um, we would say it has zoonotic origins, but uh, we wouldn't really be referring to it as a zoonotic disease. Thank you. So, Stephen, let's talk first about the, the international level. You, you mentioned the, that we're prepared for this or we have a system in place to respond to these transmissible uh, diseases that create these public health uh, crises. What are you specifically referring to? Yeah, so first, just to clarify, I wouldn't say the world is prepared. I would say that the world has been preparing for something like this because we knew that this um, was inevitable. And indeed, future outbreaks like this are inevitable in the future. Uh, so in that respect, um, basically um, at the center of all this is the, the international health regulations. So that's an international legally binding treaty that governs how 195 countries must respond to uh, public health uh, events uh, like this one. And so that um, treaty, uh, it's um, stewarded through the World Health Organization, which is the United Nations Specialized Agency for Health. Uh, that agency is put at the center of coordinating an international response to public health events like infectious diseases. The key is that as the, the grand bargain in that treaty is that we really need all countries to be working together in order to address outbreaks like this, right? Like viruses like this don't carry passports. They don't respect border guards when they, even if they were able to talk to the virus and ask them to stay away. So in that respect, we desperately actually depend on the collaboration of other countries and governments to actually contain and mitigate the consequences of infectious diseases. Uh, but of course, when countries are trying to be helpful, for example, in reporting cases, the grand bargain of this treaty is that we then won't be slapping other countries with illogical trade and travel restrictions that would end up causing more harm than good. And because we see, of course, one of the knee-jerk reactions of many countries who are not yet affected by an infectious disease is to just restrict travel, ban it, stop trade uh, between the most affected countries and others. But not only does that generally not work, but also it actually disincentivizes countries from reporting initially in the first place. And that became really important in SARS, because in SARS, it first emerged in 2002, uh, also in China. And it was known at the time that, or it's known shortly later, that the Chinese government had actually hid its, uh, its spread, such that it was only months later when it got to Hong Kong and then spread to other countries around the world that the world found out about it. So clearly the previous system, which didn't have that grand bargain, wasn't working. And so that's why it's so important that we have it in this new um, international legal framework that was revised in 2005. Yeah, and as I understand it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the 2005 international health regulations were very much a response to SARS. And they replaced, as I understand it, the predecessors, the 1951 international health regulations. They had notifiable diseases but there was a finite list of notifiable diseases. And so it wasn't really well equipped to deal with these reporting obligations with novel pathogens that had emerged from nowhere. And, and so as I understand the international health regulations in the present form, there's a matrix that you have to follow to decide when in fact something is sufficiently dire that you have to trigger this notification regime. How, how does that work? 
Yeah, so I think that's exactly right. So the 19, the last version before 2005, the substantive edit happened in 1969. And yeah, it depended on very particular uh, diseases. Um, it really was, it was designed for particular diseases and not for novel diseases that we hadn't yet seen. So that's exactly right. Um, the way that this works is that um, in the, under the new uh, international health regulations as of 2005, not only do countries have to notify the World Health Organization of particular diseases, but any kind of event that could pose a risk to international public health, countries must also alert the World Health Organization about. So that's actually not only diseases. That would include, for example, um, uh, nuclear radiation release. That would include um, a bioterrorism um, event. It would include uh, a chemical uh, release. Um, so the, the international health regulations, it really is actually an all hazards approach. And the key is whether there is a risk to international public health. And indeed, there's a whole decision instrument in the international health regulations that helps guide countries making that determination. And all countries are asked to um, take sort of an abundance of caution approach so to make sure to alert if they're not sure whether they're required to or not. And then a, a country engages in this decision. Of course, I, I, I guess initially it's in the hands of the country that's experiencing an outbreak to apply in good faith with this matrix. And as you noted, you don't want to disincentivize that. Uh, let's assume they report. Right. Then what happens once they report? So they're reporting and now the World Health Organization is given notice. What, what happens at that point? So at that point, uh, the World Health Organization makes an assessment, and uh, if the if WHO uh, agrees that this is something that uh, poses a risk to international public health, then uh, the World Health Organization will notify other countries about the risk uh, through its network of national IHR focal points. So basically, one person within every government, um, well, of the 195 countries that participate. Um, one person is designated as a focal point for this and uh, is the primary means through which information is disseminated to those governments and indeed actually getting more information from those governments. And do they make recommendations on what states should be doing? They do. So under the international health regulations, uh, the World Health Organization is empowered to make temporary recommendations um, and provide, well, generally provide advice on what government should be doing. Uh, I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle because there's many countries in the world that don't have uh, as sophisticated of a public health infrastructure in order to uh, develop that kind of advice on their own. There's many countries in the world that do rely on WHO for that advice, so it's important. Now, when we began this podcast, just, just at the outset, we were talking about the various declarations of people uh, maybe awaiting from the WHO. So is this a pandemic? Is it not? Uh, what, what is the significance of those sorts of findings by the WHO other than sort of to feed uh, the fodder for headlines and the like? Well, there, so there's two uh, different kinds of uh, declarations that we're hearing right now in the, in the news media. Um, the, the important one is whether this is a public health emergency of international concern. And indeed, the World Health Organization determined that it was on January 30th and declared uh, this outbreak to be a public health emergency of international concern back then. That is a legal term that's built into the international health regulations. And that then specifically empowers WHO to make specific recommendations to countries uh, that should ideally be followed. Um, it also um, 
is linked to various systems within national governments for emergencies. So, for example, many countries in the world might have um, like an emergency fund or might have certain provisions that empower the chief medical officer in that country to do certain things in the events of an emergency. And some countries have actually allowed that declaration of an emergency by the World Health Organization to count as a declaration of emergency to release those funds or give additional powers to certain folks. But is that we're the also case in Canada? Okay. No, it's not. So that that is not the case in Canada. Uh, in Canada, there would be a there's a separate process for declaring an emergency. Um, and we'll uh, there, that in a bit. I was just curious yeah. as to whether or not that was something that we had here. No, no, uh, we we don't have that in Canada, and I think that makes sense. We have a very sophisticated public health apparatus in Canada, whereby um, the government would be able to make a much more granular determination. Uh, so I think that that makes sense in the Canadian context. But the second thing we're hearing a lot about in the news media is whether this is a pandemic. Pandemic is a technical term, and simply it just means that there's sustained spread of a pathogen in multiple countries. And I think, frankly, uh, whether it's a pandemic or it's an epidemic in multiple countries, it actually is inconsequential in the sense that the legally important term has already been declared. This is already a public health emergency of international concern. And whether the World Health Organization chooses to use that label or not is more of a communications exercise. Public health authorities around the world are already looking at real-time data, looking at much more granular uh, details on the ground and won't be depending on whether WHO starts to use that term or not to inform their response. And and what about the recommendations that have been made so far? So you mentioned the, the grand bargain that states would inform and not expect to be slapped with capricious trade or travel embargoes. Uh, as, has the WTO recommended travel bans, nation-level quarantines, or the sort of things that, frankly, the United States has employed, which is, as I understand it, the Trump administration is now barring travelers from China, per se. Is, has that been recommended? And if it hasn't been recommended, isn't that a sensible thing to do? Many people on Twitter seem to think that it's uh, unsafe, frankly, that Canada has not followed the same course. Uh, you expressed some skepticism of, of the kind of travel embargoes a few minutes ago. Do you want to amplify yeah, so thanks for the question. Uh, this is uh, something I'm, my, a lot of my own personal research um, uh, does uh, focus on and the, what we do here at the Global Strategy Lab. Well, it's very clear from the science that travel restrictions like this, like just barring people who've been to a country from entering another country, um, it's very clear from the science they don't work. Uh, we know that based on past outbreaks. Uh, it also just makes sense given uh, when people want to travel, if they're stopped from doing so, they find other means of travel anyways. And if they, if people travel through uh, unofficial ways, it then actually makes public health job much more difficult. For example, if people do develop symptoms, if they don't travel through official means, it then becomes difficult to do contract tracing and such. Um, the World Health Organization has recommended against these kind of travel restrictions uh, because it also makes the international public health response more difficult, right? Think about uh, people um, needing to fly there to um, try to address it, like medical personnel, or even getting medical supplies in, beyond the fact that it also stigmatizes entire countries all at once. So I would actually say that we've seen lots of travel restrictions for many countries, they're, we know they're not informed by science. They're not informed by the World Health Organization because they're advising against them. They're also 
not informed by the international health regulations, because indeed they're illegal under the international health regulations. I can get more, I can talk more about that if there's interest. So in that respect, it's not based on science, it's not based on WHO, it's not based on law. I think it has much more to do with misinformation, fear, stigma, and possibly some racism, which really uh, points to the need for reconsidering those approaches for those governments, like the United States, like Australia, and many others, dozens of others that have done them, but also really calls on countries like Canada, which has taken a much better, a more measured, evidence-based approach to this outbreak to continue on that track and make sure that we don't uh, follow others who are indeed going against science, going against WHO, breaking international law in the process. I would be curious as to why uh, it's, it's illegal um, for that uh, to happen. That's actually a really interesting point. Yeah, so, uh, I, so in the International Health Regulations, Article 43 specifically uh, only allows countries to adopt additional health measures against each other under three specific circumstances. One is that if the measures are supported by science, which in this case, the science is entirely against them. The second is if the measures would be commensurate with the risks involved. And in this case, they're clearly not. I mean, WHO has said that actually, not only are they not commensurate, but they're actually counterproductive. And the third is that they have to be anchored in human rights. And this, again, I mean, restricting liberties uh, or restricting um, rights to liberty and um, uh, travel and mobility, uh, not in line with uh, our international human rights obligations. So in that respect, um, what that means is that any country that does impose these kind of additional health measures that don't work, not devised by WHO, not in line with human rights obligations, are then illegal under Article 43 of the International Health Regulations. So, so Stephen, maybe we could take it down a level and, and talk about talk about the concept of quarantine per se. And so it, it may well be that Canada hasn't followed other states like the United States in imposing uh, whole-scale travel bans. But of course, there are Canadians who have been returned from China and the cruise ship, etc., who are in quarantine. How does quarantine work in Canadian law? Yeah, so... Um, Quarantine, uh, when it's done in a precise way, like around someone who has been exposed to someone who um, has a particularly infectious disease, um, we know quarantine works. So from when it's done in a precise way, uh, unlike the kind of mass quarantines that we're seeing uh, right now in China, which have never been done before on that scale in public health and um, are, are very unlikely to work. So yeah, so we know that quarantine, when done precisely, it works and it's important. And that's important because, of course, quarantine would be violating, um, uh, in a prima facie way, someone's right to liberty. But in Canada, of course, all of our rights that are protected under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms are subject to reasonable limits that are both prescribed by law and that can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So that's why the Quarantine Act becomes so important, because that is the reasonable limit that's prescribed by law, or at least that's the prescription by law. It's in the Quarantine Act. And then it becomes um, important that the Quarantine Act is applied in a precise way so that it's minimally impairing Canadians' rights, uh, particularly the right to liberty. So in that respect, uh, the Quarantine Act actually plays an enormous role in empowering the federal government to limit 
um, the rights of Canadians that we would usually have, but only so long as it actually makes sense from a public health perspective, because otherwise it wouldn't be minimally impairing of those rights. Right. And, and our Quarantine Act is actually, again, I, I, 20, 2006, right? So it, it uh, was updated for the first time in almost a century, more than a century, as I understand it, after SARS. It's a more modern instrument. And it's, it's, going through it is quite considerable, the powers that the quarantine office or the border officer has in terms of insisting that, uh, for example, a person take uh, medical treatment of various sorts and uh, and in the absence of consent by that person, there are ways to compel them uh, through court order and the like. It's it's a pretty invasive instrument. And in fact, I was curious to read that the government does have the power under the Quarantine Act to issue emergency regulations that would bar re-entry by a Canadian, which right away would raise not just liberty interests, but a mobility right under Section 6. And I think you're right. The only way to justify that would be a robust Section 1 uh, reasonable grounds in the circumstances of a, of a serious pandemic. Uh, yeah. It's a pretty, pretty impressive instrument from a legal perspective, and by impressive, I mean daunting. Yeah, I think that uh, the key one that for me makes it um, quite an extraordinary instrument is that it does give the Minister of Health the ability to make temporary regulations of the kind that would usually require cabinet approval for a certain number of days. Um, I believe it's uh, 14 days. Uh, before which a cabinet would need to um, uh, approve it for it to be continuing to be binding. Uh, that is, um, I, I'm, maybe there's other uh, legal instruments in Canada that also give that kind of temporary regulatory powers. I'm sure there are, uh, but uh, I guess in that public health context, that this is, that's um, really quite extraordinary. Uh, there are other things um, like uh, the Minister of Health can designate any site in Canada as a quarantine site. So that includes uh, anyone who's listening, their houses could be sort of taken temporarily by the minister. And um, My mom tried uh, to make that argument when I was growing up with my bedroom, but no, uh, <laughs> not, not, not there yet. <laughs> Not there yet, but well, the minute well, if your mom uh, became the minister, she could do it. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, she's not listening. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so no, but it's a. I think, but there are some safeguards in the sense that, of course, um, all legislation uh, must be compliant with our charter, right? So that uh, points to uh, the, the for the fact we live in a society that has a Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and uh, we have a government that must follow the rule of law. Um, but also there are some more specific uh, safeguards in there. So, for example, um, Craig, you mentioned that um, somebody um, might be subjected to medical treatments um, even without consent, but those people do have the right to consult a second opinion, a doctor of their choosing. So um, maybe that's not full comfort, but what that does is it creates a little bit of a second check and accountability mechanism to make sure that um, as the government um, is... Uh, making use of its Quarantine Act powers, it's doing so in a sensible way. It's kind of interesting, like, um, sometimes I teach pandemics in my class, and, you know, if we do simulations, like, the first thing my students want to do is suspend the Constitution when they when one of these things appears, and I think that's kind of the gut reaction to a pandemic, maybe because it's fueled by the kind of Hollywood nightmares that, you know, come out every once in a while. But I, I, it's interesting that, in fact, that there is this kind of legal framework, a powerful one that really does empower the government to, to act in a lot of ways. But, you know, suspending the charter or the constitution really isn't something that's, that's on board. I'm so glad you asked that because I'm of the belief that human rights and public health imperatives almost always go hand in hand. I think there's been lots of questions, for example, about um, 
like, well, do we actually have to worry about, for example, millions of people in China and all the rights that are being suspended um, during this time because all, there's a virus we have to worry about? And I think the, I think where the alignment happens is that when people are scared and are put and forced into situations where they feel very uncomfortable or situations that are undignified or risky, people act out and don't act the way that public health officials would want them to act. And that's just human nature. So in that respect, um, I think this gives me an opportunity to point to the uh, craziness that we saw on the Diamond Princess cruise ship that was anchored off of Japan, where people were forced to be in quarantine uh, 14 days in a situation that I I never thought was a viable quarantine option. So, I mean, imagine... Um, people being forced to be in an inner stateroom, no lights, no fresh air, 14 days. No way, no way is anyone going to be um, sticking with that quarantine. I mean, if I was forced to do that, I would be sneaking out at night to get some fresh air, breaking the quarantine, right? Because that's just not a way to do it. Uh, and they had alternatives, but I think what it highlights is that um, following human rights, upholding human rights during these difficult times actually aligns with public health. I think even more than the passengers is the, the, the crew of that cruise ship. We later learned that uh, the crew were not actually being quarantined because there weren't enough rooms. They, they bunked together. Uh, they had to eat together, and so they weren't able to separate themselves. They were then traveling through the ships, providing food to folks, and ended up being the vector through which people were then for, uh, the, uh, further infected on the ship. Because and if more you think people of it, got like, infected on that ship than had been before. Like, it just seems to have been like one of the right. most counterproductive things that we've seen in this entire situation. That's right. And I think one of the key things is those workers were forced to work in a sense, like you could, in a sense, compare it a little bit to like slave labor, right? They weren't allowed to leave their post. They weren't allowed to leave the ship. They were in very unsafe working conditions. And in the end, those unsafe working conditions did actually... Um, result in a risk that was realized, right? Because they got infected in very high numbers and then were transmitting it through the ship. It just is one example highlighting that human rights are not only important in and of themselves, but in an outbreak like this, we don't want to suspend human rights because it actually can undermine the public health response as well in a counterintuitive way. It's not the way most people think about it. Um, and I think maybe travel restrictions between countries is another good example. At first glance, we might say, oh, well, we better be safe then sorry, right? Uh, and let's just stop all travel from a country. But actually, it undermines our our public health because what that does is it then disincentivizes other countries from letting us know when cases pop up there. Like if I was if I was a minister of health in in a country, I might not even want the ability to diagnose this virus because if I don't have as strong of a health system to be able to react to it, why would I want the ability to detect it? just so that I then would have to let the world know that I have cases to then get a travel and trade restriction that's going to devastate my economy. I wouldn't want it. And that's a big, big, big risk that we have right now. Uh, and that is being fueled by these illogical travel restrictions that dozens of countries have imposed. We saw a bit of that, uh, Stephen, with the SARS in 2003. I remember Mel Lastman was very upset. Who was it that was recommending no travel to Toronto? It might have even reached the WHO level. And, and Mel Lastman said, you know, who the hell is the who? Uh, right? <laughs> Which I, one, of his, one of his lasting uh, contributions to Canadian political discourse. And so we learned a lot uh, in Canada from the SARS outbreak. 
the Ontario Public Health Act was amended to enable more efficient group-based quarantines, as I understand it, notification of the public. If you've been at such and such a funeral, this person died of SARS, please uh, self-contain yourself, self-quarantine yourself. There, those sorts of provisions weren't in our act before uh, 2003. We seem to do a lot of learning at the provincial level. And of course, the provincial level is the most important because once you cross the border, health matters fall uh, within the purview of the provinces, at least initially. Uh, so how much have we learned from SARS? And uh, are we in a position to respond to this latest outbreak efficiently? Yeah, so, well, I think uh, uh, first thing, uh, we definitely, this this kind of issue, uh, like an outbreak, really does um, affect all levels of governments in the sense that on public health issue, there's shared responsibility between uh, provinces and the federal government. Uh, also, of course, all the international legal obligations fall on the federal government to, to be realized. Um, but really, lo um, public health is local above anything else, right? It's really, it hits the ground at the local level. So actually, the, the people actually most affected right now are those in the communities, like the, the city level or regions that are having um, some initial cases, and that's where it's going to be. In terms of SARS, um, we learned a lot. There were some very harsh lessons that were learned in Canada, particularly Toronto, from this outbreak, which I think does make us better prepared for this kind of outbreak we're seeing today because we did learn those harsh lessons. I'll be more specific. For example, the reason why Toronto during 2003, during SARS, was slapped with a travel advisory by the World Health Organization was because WHO was unable to get information from Toronto, from Canada, about the nature of the spread. And so out of an abundance of caution and in the absence of being able to get the information it was requesting, they slapped the city with a travel advisory, costing billions and billions in economic damage and stigmatizing the city for quite some time thereafter. Uh, unnecessarily so if WHO had been able to get the information that it needed. That pointed to the absence of information and communication channels between different levels of government in Canada. Uh, which uh, is, I would say, the number one thing that changed after SARS in Canada. So, Craig, as you said, we had the creation of, or the revision of the um, Public Health Act in Ontario. We had the creation of Public Health Ontario, which is now an agency uh, responsible for public health in the province. At the federal level, we had the creation of the Public Health Agency of Canada, which I think is the single most important change that we have had after SARS in the Canadian context. And indeed, during this outbreak, what we're seeing is an impressive communication uh, happening, open lines of communication, people who need information are getting it when they need, and that information is, is multi-directional. It's happening across provinces, it's happening between cities, it's happening from the feds to the provinces, it's happening between countries. That's what we want to see, and that's what we are seeing. So that's really good. I have, I have two kind of questions that kind of take us back to the international context that have been that I've been thinking about. And, and in the first case, what we've seen recently is that this outbreak or this this uh, you know COVID nineteen is now in Iran uh, and appears to be spreading. And what you know, what are the obligations, or you know, how does it work with countries that are under serious sanction regimes? and may not have access to some of the materials that, you know, we have here in Canada. I mean, is there any kind of provisions for that um, under the WHO? Is this something that you're concerned about um, that we should be thinking about? Not just Iran, but countries like North Korea um, 
that are that that may uh, have you know not only are these countries with not great economies to start off with, but you know might not be able to actually access the kinds of things that would be needed to fight a pandemic. Yeah, so I um I think that's a really important question and really highlights uh, the broader issue that not all countries are equally prepared or have equal capacity to respond to outbreaks. And that actually affects the safety of the world as a whole. So I'll give you an example. Um, uh, beyond uh, Iran, um, I mean, I think in um, in many countries, in Africa, for example, um, before this outbreak, there was not the capacity to diagnose this uh, virus. And indeed, um, the level of capacity in many countries uh, in the African region are... Um, are still not up there. And that's because uh, the world hasn't made investments needed in building public health infrastructure in every part of the world, meaning that uh, if we can only be as strong as the weakest link in the public health infrastructure system, then, um, well, we're, uh, we're, we're pretty weak in certain places, right? So um, this makes me worried because I, we, we know that there's lots of travel between China and certain countries in Africa, particularly Central Africa. And then we also know that some of those countries have the least capacity to diagnose. We haven't had cases pop up in those countries. But, and many, many folks are looking at that as good news, but the reality is there's no testing capacity to even look. So there might be tons of cases. It might be spreading all over. It's probably not, um, but there could be. And at some point in the future, it might be. And uh, we don't have um, the way to respond to it at that point. I think that's why there's a lot of news right now focused on the fact that we need to move beyond a focus solely on containment. This has now spread to enough countries, and there is sustained spread in enough countries. And there's enough cases that we can't trace back to the original line of transmission, such that we are now in a place where we also have to focus on mitigation which just means getting ready for the reality that we are likely to see a lot more cases and need to just focus on um, minimizing the consequences of those cases and ensuring our systems can continue to operate in the presence of quite a few more cases. So yeah, so your question about sanctions in Iran and such, it's part of, a, a, of that broader story about how different countries have different levels of capacity and really highlights the need to make investments in public health infrastructure, not just during an outbreak, because at that point it's too late. We need to do it at all times, and that's important. Stephen, just on that same theme, in terms of the uh, the international response, the international health regulations, you talked about the grand bargain. I, I believe there's a provision that says that there should be a mobilization of financial resources to support developing countries and building, strengthening, and maintaining their public health capacities. Now, that undertaking was made in 2005, Given your comments, it doesn't sound like that's been realized. Yeah, so Craig, you know a lot about the international health regulations. We're going to have to uh, work <laughs> together uh, on something. This is great. You're talking about Article 44 of the international health regulations, which comes immediately after Article 43, which I talked about earlier, which was the one about the travel restrictions. It's That is definitely part of the grand bargain. And indeed, when you look to the travaux preparatoire around Article 43, there were a lot of concerns that, well, uh, if, we, um, if we are going to agree to not do these travel restrictions, we need to make sure that countries actually have the capacity to be able to report events. And therefore, it became an extremely important part of the puzzle that countries have all 
taken on a duty to collaborate and assist each other, both during the context of an outbreak, as well as between outbreak periods to build up those core public health capacities. That is definitely part of this story. And I would say, actually, if you read all the articles of the International Health Regulations, Article 44, that duty to collaborate and assist, is actually the clearest, it's the sharpest wording of what countries are actually obligated to do under the international health regulations. All other articles, there's like, if circumstances require it, as allowed, as per national um, legislative frameworks and constitutional obligations, there's always caveats or conditions, not when it comes to the duty to collaborate and assist. And unfortunately, we have not seen the levels of collaboration and assistance. Um, I would say, uh, well, certainly not between um, outbreak periods, but uh, probably also we haven't seen the level of support needed during outbreaks like this current one. So I think that's so critical um, to highlight. And from a legal perspective, uh, very clear, but also noting the fact that there are no strong in, um, enforcement mechanisms built into the international health regulations, it then means it's actually really hard to realize even a very clear legal obligation. Can I, while we're speaking of uh, legal obligations, one of the things that I've been thinking about is, um, and, and this, you know, since they were updated, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, something that wasn't on the minds perhaps of, of the different countries agreeing to them was the idea of disinformation. Is there anything in the international health regulations about countries that are, you know, where there's attribution to disinformation efforts about different viruses or in particular, say, this uh, COVID-19? So because I was thinking, you know, is this going to be something that we have to take seriously, perhaps in the next round of updating? Or is there something that's already there? Could you actually say that, you know, you're, if a country, if a state is engaging in disinformation activities about this, could you say that you're failing in your duty to be collaborative? Uh, yes, and it actually, uh, I think the even um, the even more um, uh, related uh, uh, and important uh, provision related to that is that the new international health regulations as of 2005 actually allow the World Health Organization to make decisions and alert the world about risks beyond just official government sources. So that includes the news media and really highlights the critically important role that journalists play around the world in, uh, in the context of an outbreak. That becomes important because if you remember in SARS, there was a long period of time when there were rumors of this unknown virus uh, happening uh, somewhere in China and what government denied it. Uh, and so the World Health Organization was in this very difficult situation where the previous international health regulations, the one from 1969, didn't actually allow WHO to alert the world based on non-official sources, such as from journalists. That's changed. And so what's happening now is WHO is indeed taking all kinds of information, integrating that into its form, its decisions. Uh, but also WHO recently has shown a willingness to... Um, speak out in contravention to what the government of a country is saying. That hasn't happened in COVID-19, but it happened just before, a, a few months ago, um, with uh, Ebola, which is still, of course, happening um, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. That is also a public health emergency of international concern happening right now. But there was media reports of some cases, only a couple of cases of Ebola in Tanzania. And 
The government denied it. Uh, WHO, though, because the international health regulations allowed it, uh, did some follow-on investigation and did let the world know against the wishes of the Tanzanian government that there, there, they believe there were a couple of cases in that country. Now, I'm not sure we're going to see that with COVID-19, or at least not with China. China is one of the most powerful countries in the world, and what we have seen from the World Health Organization seems to be unmitigated praise for that country's response in a way that borders on the um, on the ridiculous. In the yeah, sense I that- mean, it's, my concern is like it. I mean, look, I'm not in a position where I have to declare a pandemic or a public health emergency of international concern or things like this, but I mean to the extent that the World Organization has gone out of its way to praise China, I mean, I can understand in the context that the World Health Organization it wants to basically say, look, what you did in 2002 was not good. What you're doing now is much better. And we want to encourage that, China. Um, so we don't want to doubt, you know, we don't want to lecture you again. But, you know, to the rest of the world, it kind of discredits, perhaps, the World Health Organization, and that could have longer-term consequences. Is, is that yeah. correct? I, I think that is correct. I think, um, you know, so I, I think there's two sides to this. Uh, so if I was the director general of the World Health Organization, one of my top priorities would be to try to keep China engaged in the global response effort. And we also know that China is quite sensitive to international criticism, such that if I was the director general of the World Health Organization, I would probably avoid all criticism of China, because it's just not helpful, uh, and I need them. But I also am not sure that I, actually, I'm very sure I would not be heaping on the praise that is being heaped on China at the moment. Uh, I think, though, uh, the way that WHO is approaching it is they're thinking of China and they're praising China's international response. And by that, what I mean is China is sharing information. They are being transparent with other countries. They did allow the World Health Organization to go in uh, and work with them to do a study mission. That's important. I think where the criticism would come is more from an international human rights perspective, which, frankly, is built into the constitution of the World Health Organization. It's built into the core of the international health regulations. It's essential. But I think WHO is not focused on that. And so their praise is really, I think, about the international dimension. My worry, though, is that most people aren't differentiating. They're just seeing what China's doing, these mass quarantines, these over-the-top responses. And I worry that there's other countries that might take that praise as being a sign that those other countries should do that as well if it reaches their, within their countries. And so, for example, we saw some pretty drastic measures taken in northern Italy recently. And, um, I mean, uh, quarantining entire uh, villages, stopping a lot of public transit, um, stranding a lot of people. I, um, I do worry that praising a country unmitigatedly in the way like we're seeing could actually inform other countries' responses in a way that it should not. Last word, uh, Professor Hoffman, if you were to be grading the uh, global response uh, in your academic capacity, what grade would you give the response to date? Globally, uh, a lot has worked well. Um, So uh, I think actually uh, the most impressive part is the global scientific response. So the fact that within two weeks of this virus appearing, we had the viral genome sequenced 
and posted online and therefore getting immediately a diagnostic test for this virus, that is unprecedented in an outbreak. We've never had that kind of response. And that actually is a game changer for the public health response. So there's been some really impressive things. There's been all these um, uh, calls for re uh, rapid research responses. Um, so um, uh, Canadian Institutes of Health Research launched a rapid research response, um, several millions of dollars to get out the door within a couple of weeks to enable scientists in Canada to contribute. That kind of thing is happening all over the world. Very impressive response in that respect. We have seen open lines of communication. That's good. We have, though, seen some huge blind spots. Uh, there's some parts of the world we just have no idea whether this outbreak is there, not there, raging in a small way, big way. We don't, there's so much we don't know. Globally, I'd give it maybe, um, all things considering, maybe a B, B minus. Um, Still a pass at Nipsia. That's that's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a, I guess it's a pass, and I it's not a great do, pass. People would I, I yeah. see a lot of students about that, but yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I mean, um, yeah. So at our lab, we're not looking to hire folks who have like, the B minuses. Take <laughs> notes, students. <laughs> Uh, really, we we love those A plus uh, students, but uh, no, no. I um, I think um, I think all cons things considered, um, a lot has gone well. I would say there are certain areas where we can say are points where we must improve for future outbreaks. Uh, I think when though when we look at the Canadian context, I would give our governments an A plus. Uh, we are an outlier globally for having taken a measured, proportionate evidence-based response, which is unfortunately the outlier right now. Um, and I'd say that for at least two reasons. One is the, the communication from uh, particularly the federal government, but also provincial and local governments is clear, it's coordinated. We are seeing exactly those information channels that we want open, they are open. Um, people who need information are getting it. And we're not breaking our international legal obligations in the process. Uh, I, um, my hope is that we just continue to take an evidence-based approach in Canada to continue, um, I guess, uh, deserving of that A-plus rating that I give it today. <laughs> right. Well, that's a relatively optimistic way to end this uh, podcast on. Maybe yeah, I didn't see that coming. Please. Did not. Yeah. How you, uh, <laughs> <laughs> see how you fare uh, in terms of your uh, predictions. But uh, thanks very much, Stephen, for taking uh, time this morning to join us on the podcast. It's always uh, interesting to uh, be able to sort of broaden our horizons and talk about uh, issues that uh, many people don't consider national security issues. But both Stephanie and I, I think, would share the view that this is very richly a national security issue. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. This was fun. I'm happy to be able to contribute.